Today is Pentecost Sunday, and I think many of us who are here uh, probably have long connection with the church, long enough at least to have heard about Pentecost. You've maybe heard about Pentecostals, um, and you've definitely heard about the Holy Spirit. But the question is, but what? What have you heard about the Holy Spirit? What have you heard about the day of Pentecost? And honestly, what has been your experience of the Holy Spirit? This is something that is routinely brought up on sermons on Pentecost Sunday, and I understand this, but I think it's worth revisiting the question again. What has your experience of the Holy Spirit been? I think for some of us, the way that we have been raised, and sometimes it's been by looking you know, far afield at our Pentecostal or charismatic brothers and sisters, in modern days, the Holy Spirit can sometimes come across as a bit of a joker in the deck. You know what I mean? Like the game is going the way you think it will, and then the Holy Spirit comes and he just changes everything, maybe even makes the cards go everywhere. I don't know. But the Holy Spirit blows everything up and anything could happen. This contrasts, I think, with the way that, you know, reading church history, and I'm studying historical theology here at Wycliffe, one of the impressions that I get reading some of the older uh, authors in the history of the church is that the Holy Spirit is more like a company man that's there to kind of set the institutional line. That is, the Holy Spirit is the one who puts the church together and gives its many orders of bishops and priests and deacons and subdeacons and, and you know, catechists and the whole, the whole gamut. The Holy Spirit is, is what gives structure and order to the church, but is there for you simply to justify the way the church is right now and can sometimes be used to justify the status quo. I think for many of us too, um, and I think I would often put myself in this category, growing up or coming to faith in evangelical churches, the Holy Spirit can tend to be what St. Paul spoke about in Athens as being the unknown God. That is, we hear a lot about Jesus. We hear a lot about God the Father, although less about God the Father. It's easy to talk about Jesus, but it is hard to connect with the Holy Spirit. It's hard to say, well, what is the Holy Spirit about? What is his personality? I remember being at a youth retreat. Um, I wasn't leading. I was just there observing. And, and, uh, and the speaker said, you know, the Holy Spirit has a personality. Have you gotten to know his personality? And I thought the, the question a little bit troubling, a little bit challenging. But it makes someone who has grown in his faith like I have to think, well, is he an unknown God? Here, I think we can take instruction maybe comfort, certainly challenge, from the second chapter of Acts, as we have it read here in our midst this evening. And as I hope we will do, as we go home and we study it, we talk about it in our small groups, as we discuss the second chapter of Acts, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes, and discover what God intends for us to take away, what God intends for us to encounter in the pages of Scripture when we read about the Holy Spirit. I would like to suggest to you today that coming from the second chapter of Acts, we can see that the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to experience God as gift. I know some of you are going to say that's just because you're a theologian, and you know that in the church we have often referred to the Holy Spirit as gift. And I'd say, well, partially true. <laughs> I am a theologian, and I have heard the church tell me this, and yet I believe that it also emerges from Acts chapter 2, that the Holy Spirit enables us to experience God as gift, as 
First, we're going to talk about as Jesus himself gives the Holy Spirit as a gift. Secondly, as the Holy Spirit gives us Jesus. And finally, as the Holy Spirit makes us a gift as well. So let's dive into our passage uh, this evening. Um, again, the the pages of uh, Acts chapter 2 are found in your bulletin, well, at least the page numbers, in the Bibles that are there for you. Of course, many of you carry around little Bibles on your phones, um, or <laughs> some of you may bring your Bible to church. That's fine. But <clears throat> please, please refer to your bulletin if you need to know where to find Acts chapter 2 this evening for our study. So my first point, as I said, is that Jesus came to give us the Holy Spirit. This was the reason why Jesus came. Many of us, we, when we were first presented with the gospel, we were told Jesus came into this world to save us from our sins. 100% true and biblical. No disagreements. We talk about that most Sundays out of the year. But I would suggest to you today that it is equally true that Jesus came in order to give us the Holy Spirit. To the point that in the upper room, as Jesus is about to be betrayed and handed over into the hands of sinful men and crucified, he even tells his disciples, it is better for me to go away because if I don't go away, if I do not ascend up to heaven, as Deacon Marion shared with us last week, you cannot receive the Holy Spirit. And that is the whole reason why I came into this world was so that you can have the Holy Spirit. Now, when he says things like this, when we read in the second chapter of Acts, the spirit is being poured out. And as Peter gets up and as he preaches this sermon to those who hear them speaking in other tongues and manifesting the power of the Holy Spirit in other ways, it can seem a little bit strange to us. And we begin to wonder, at least I begin to wonder, did they know that there was a Holy Spirit? And I believe, I think fairly strong, with strong reason, that the people of God knew that there was a Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had been at work in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, from the very beginning. I want to point out to you three quick things, three quick ways in which the Old Covenant people of God experienced the Holy Spirit. First, they experienced God's Spirit as his creative breath. You go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and who is hovering over the waters in the spirit of creation? Like a dove, like a bird, it is the Holy Spirit. And this theme of God breathing out his spirit and bringing about a new creation appears repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. For instance, in, in, uh, during Noah's flood in Genesis 9-1, after the floods have destroyed the world, God sends forth his wind, his spirit, if you will, and breathes over this vast wasteland, this, this emptiness and void, a new creation from which Noah and his family descend from the ark. That hot east wind that blows over the waters of the Red Sea and brings his people through the waters and out of captivity in Egypt. We can see that even the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 63, 11, associates that wind and the cloud that comes from it as a manifestation of God's spirit. In fact, to mention the cloud, that cloud becomes a very important way in which God's people experience the Holy Spirit as well. The wind, the breath of God creates, and the cloud, the shining nimbus of God, the Holy Spirit, as Isaiah 63, 11 points out, is what guides his people through the wilderness. It is what 
guides them first on the outskirts of the covenant people of God as they are arranged. God allows his cloud and his shining glory to be outside the camp. But once the tabernacle has been built, that shining cloud comes and dwells in their midst, puts himself right in the middle of Israel. He's there through the tabernacle, and when they build the temple, he comes and he fills it as well as Solomon prays, until finally in Ezekiel chapter chapter 11, chapter, chapters 10 and 11, the glory of God, the Holy Spirit, departs from the temple. And they long to see the Holy Spirit return. So, creative breath, radiant cloud. We also see that God's powerful anointing shows up in the Old Testament as well. The Holy Spirit filling leaders like Moses who passes him on to Joshua. That spirit that empowers and speaks through Moses being multiplied to 70 of the elders of Israel there in the book of Numbers. Filling kings like Saul and David. It says after David was anointed by the prophet Samuel that the Spirit of God rushed upon him and empowered him for exercising the office of the anointed one, of being the Christ. You can make, by extension, the same argument about the priests in the Old Testament. But that anointing was limited to a certain number of people. And it's here that the prophecy in Joel that Peter quotes during his sermon is so important because Joel says, in those last days, in the latter days, in the end times, when the world is about to end, I am going to pour out my spirit on all flesh, not just on kings, not just on prophets, not just on priests, but upon all flesh. And suddenly, as the Holy Spirit is being poured out on the day of Pentecost, this is what the people experience. And this is what Peter does as he ascends the dais, or whatever it was that he was standing on to speak. And he says, this is being fulfilled in your hearing. The prophecy that God's creative breath would breathe once again, the prophecy that the shining glorious cloud of the Holy Spirit would come and dwell in the midst of his people. Again, that prophecy that the anointing and empowering of God would not just be for our leaders who have so often ignored and butchered it, but the anointing is for every single one of you. It's finally come. And good that it happened on Pentecost. Pentecost is one, just to go back to the Old Testament for a second. Pentecost is that feast which occurs seven weeks, seven Sabbaths, a Sabbath of Sabbaths after the Feast of the Passover. The reason why it's called Pentecost is because Pentecost in Greek means 50, and seven times seven is what? 49 plus one is 50. The plus one is really important. There is a pattern in the Old Testament of Sabbaths plus one. Think of circumcision, for instance. Children were supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. It was a whole Sabbath, and most of the Old Testament is caught up in Sabbaths and fulfilling these seven days of whatever it is, seven days, seven years, seven months. But in the case of circumcision, it's seven plus one, something that happens on the other side of all the fulfilling. You see this in the year of Jubilee. It's 49 years, a Sabbath of Sabbath years. But that extra year is the year of Jubilee when all freedom erupts. This is what Pentecost, in some ways, represented in the Old Testament. It represented a lot of other things, but 
it certainly represented that having fulfilled everything, having fulfilled the law in its entirety, having fulfilled all of God's purpose, there was a new thing that was being done. When God says, behold, I make all things new, Pentecost was the eruption of it. And Peter, in his sermon, connects this with what is happening with the Holy Spirit. By appealing to the prophet Joel, by appealing to the prophet David in Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, he is able to make the connection that what, the, what David said his tongue was supposed to do in being loosed has now been loosed for all of these apostles. Just as David was to be filled with joy, they have now been filled with the Holy Spirit. They prophesy, young men, old men. They dream dreams. They tell visions. And the Holy Spirit is being poured out on all flesh and you can see that because just about every nation in the Jewish diaspora is here represented. Peter says, I call on you, let the whole house of Israel know that God has made him Lord and Christ. Well, the whole house of Israel from all over the world had been assembled there and had been witnessing the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on all flesh. And Peter is clear to point out that this is the very reason why Jesus came. Look at verse 33. This is the conclusion of everything that Jesus has done. According to verses 30 and 31, Jesus came and he fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies, all of the will that his father had for him. Jesus obeyed his father's will in verse 23. He was betrayed and put to death on a cross, and he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, verse 36, why? Why did he do all of this? It was to bring about the last days. It was to bring about the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh. In other words, Jesus has done everything in his ministry, in his life, in his death, in order to bring you the Holy Spirit. I think, just to take a pause here for a second, I think that right there should indicate how seriously we need to take understanding the Holy Spirit, who he is, and his presence in our lives. If the fulfillment of all that Jesus was doing was to, as Peter says, receive from God the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit, and then to pour it out upon all of us, there is every reason to think that this might be one of the most important things for you to understand, not just in your Christian walk or Christian life, but in life in general. Because what it means is that Jesus has come and has brought to fulfillment all of God's plans, and that by living in the power of the Spirit, we are able to walk in the ultimate reality. To use a big theological term, the eschatological reality that Jesus came to secure for us life on the other side of the resurrection being brought somehow as a foretaste to us even right now. Now this has a corollary, as I mentioned. The Holy Spirit has come to give us Jesus as well. Not only has Jesus come to give us the Holy Spirit, if we want to receive Jesus, Jesus is the one, or the Holy Spirit is the one who gives Jesus to us. Now we can see this from what the Holy Spirit is doing in the life of Jesus in the first place. Now, I, I mentioned that 
The Holy Spirit was active all throughout the Old Testament. And the people would have recognized this. We could say the same thing about the life of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is there in the life of Jesus, empowering him every step of the way. If you look, and I'm going to take most of my citations here from the book of Luke, since Luke and Acts really go together as a companion volume set. If you look in Luke chapter 1, verses 35, it is the Holy Spirit who overshadows the Virgin Mary as she conceives Jesus. That overshadowing that the Holy Spirit does in creation, well, he overshadows Mary to bring about the conception of the Son of God. We can see in Luke chapter 3, verses, verse 22, and Luke chapter 4, verse 1, that, of course, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus at his baptism, empowering him for ministry, and it is the Spirit that pushes him out into the wilderness in order to be tempted on our behalf as well. His ministry begins in the book of Luke with him reading from the scroll in Isaiah about how the Spirit of the Lord has anointed him and come upon him to empower him for this kind of ministry. You could even say that it is transfiguration. The Holy Spirit shows up in the same way that he did in the Old Testament, which is the glorious shining cloud of God that envelops the disciples as they see Jesus and Moses and Elijah. They want to build three temples, but the Holy Spirit comes and stops them. And the voice from heaven, as at the baptism, says, This is my son. Listen to him. And of course, and perhaps most importantly, the Holy Spirit was there with Jesus on the cross. The author to the Hebrews interprets Jesus's giving up his spirit to his father, right? Into the, your hands I commend my spirit. The author to the Hebrews in Hebrews 9.14 says that by the eternal spirit, Jesus offered himself up to his father as a sacrifice on our behalf. And as Paul makes clear in Romans 1 and Romans 8, it is the spirit of God who raises Jesus from the dead. God, by his spirit, raises his son, and it is by the spirit and for the spirit that Jesus ascends into heaven. We see this in Luke 24, 49, as Jesus says, you need to wait until I have ascended and until I've received the promise of my father, I'm going to pour him out on you. You need to wait because that is what my ascension is about. It's about going and receiving the Holy Spirit. So we, we should expect, if, G, if the Holy Spirit has been empowering Jesus and his ministry the entire time that he has been alive on earth and active in the life of his disciples, we should not be surprised that it is the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost who is likewise using the apostles to transmit Jesus to their listeners. And in fact, there's some really interesting connections in Acts chapter 2 connecting what the Holy Spirit is doing in the upper room with what Peter is doing in his address. If you look at verse 14, as it says about Peter addressing the crowds, that is the same word, and it's an interesting, it's not the ordinary word, it is the same word that is used for the spirits giving them utterances in verse 4. And in fact, the same kind of thing. When people are hearing the sound, the crazy sound that the apostles are making as they are empowered by the Holy Spirit and in speaking and in tongues, that sound, that voice, is the same word that is also used when Peter begins to address them with his voice. It's the only two times in this chapter that that word is used. Common word, only two times, though, in this chapter that it's being used. In other words, I believe that the author of the Acts 
the author of the book of Acts is trying to draw our attention to the fact that Peter's message here is what they were saying. Now, it's possible that Peter got up and spoke this sermon as everyone around him is speaking in different tongues and are being understood by different people, and he delivers the sermon exactly as we have it recorded for us in Luke. I suspect that Luke is giving us a summary version of Peter's sermon. Otherwise, it would be a much shorter sermon than what I'm giving you today. That's a joke. I'm sorry. But... uh, (laughs) But I believe that this was a summary, and not only a summary of Peter's message, I believe that this is a sample of the other kinds of tellings, discourses, utterances, admitted by the other apostles as they were declaring the mighty works of God. The mighty works of God are what were being proclaimed through the gift of tongues. And Peter's is a sample of it. In other words, Peter's sermon is the Spirit's charismatic gift. And it is representative of the kind of charismatic speech that we see Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians 14, 12. And how does the Spirit do this? He takes the passages that Peter references, Joel chapter 3, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110. And he takes the words, the elements, the components of those passages, and he infuses Peter's sermon with them. That is, he allows Peter's sermon to connect what's happening in the upper room and what is broken out into open market there in Jerusalem to help interpret the word of God and to give Jesus in the, prophet, in, in the process. So, therefore, Joel's celestial signs that he talks about in 19 to 20, how the sun is going to be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, etc., etc. Those portents and signs Peter then says, were what God was doing when he bore witness to Jesus in verse 22. These passages talk about how there is salvation at David's right hand in verse 25, Psalm 16, and in verse 34 in Psalm 110. But now that salvation is found at the right hand, not only of David, but at the right hand of God. And perhaps most compellingly, David talks about how he has the hope, his flesh has hope in verse 26. But it is, as Peter says, in his own flesh and blood, the fruit of his loins, verse 30, whose glorified flesh the Spirit of God has delivered from corruption in verse 31. In other words, what Peter is doing, or what rather what the Holy Spirit is doing through Peter, is taking Scripture, taking the Word of God, and allowing the Spirit to interpret it into the discourse that he is giving. And in the process... What is being communicated is Jesus. Jesus, although he is at the right hand of the Father, is making himself known through the communication of the word. And it is the Spirit doing it. The Spirit uttering through Peter and through the other apostles is bringing Jesus to the people. And in fact, we should be able to say that giving his people Jesus is the great purpose for the Spirit's coming. Jesus came in order to give us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in order to give us Jesus. He gives us Jesus in the ministry of the gospel, and he gives us Jesus in the fellowship of the church. We cannot forget that these men were not preaching alone. It wasn't just as today, you know, one preacher standing up and giving a two-hour-long sermon, or however long this is going to be, kind of message. 
No, this was the entire body of Christ coming together, speaking as one, but with different voices, with different articulations, even with different languages. In other words, to take a brief pause again here, the Spirit is right now doing everything he can to give you Jesus. Jesus gave everything in order to give you the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God, right now, as I am speaking, as you are listening, as we gather together in fellowship and in his name, what is he doing? He is doing everything possible to give you Jesus, to make you close to him. This is what Pentecost is all about. It's about Jesus as much as it is about the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is all about Jesus. Well, this means finally. I mentioned Jesus was coming to give the Holy Spirit as a gift. The Holy Spirit comes to give Jesus as a gift. But the Holy Spirit also comes to give us to God, to make us a gift. We can see this in how this works out, right? Peter comes. He stands up, he preaches his sermon, and he ends by saying that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And made and do, uh, make and do in Greek are the same words. So God has done this. He has made him whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And the response of the crowds is that their heart is pierced. That heart that David himself is talking about, once again, and they say, what must we do? Same word. Brothers, what must we do in order to be saved? The answer, of course, Peter says, repent and be baptized. Not perhaps the answer that we, were, we would have been expecting. We were just reading along and saying, all right, these people have just killed God. They're in big trouble. Jesus is coming back at any moment and could call them to account. You would think, you know, offer sacrifices, do this, do that. He says, no, repent and be baptized. So what does this do? Experientially, it takes us back to the beginning of Jesus's ministry. If you go to Luke chapter 3, verse 3, what is John the Baptist telling everybody? Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. It also brings us back to the climax of Jesus' ministry as he visits his disciples in the upper room in Luke chapter 24, verses 47 to 49. He says, the promise is for you. I'm promising you something. And it is for you, and it is for your children, and it is for all who are far off. This is embedded. This is, once again, something that like the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, like the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus, perhaps we should have seen coming. We can see what this Holy Spirit is doing to prepare for this moment. As the Holy Spirit infills each of the apostles, and as they bear witness in each nation's language, they do this in order to bring each person to God. It is interesting that Peter says, be baptized every one of you. This echoes the language of the Holy Spirit descending on each one of the apostles and coming to each one of the distinct languages that are being that are listening to him in other words 
What Peter is saying is, you are going to receive the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. You will be infilled with the Holy Spirit, just as the apostles were, and just as you are, and just has been promised through Jesus. This is not just to the house of the apostles in verse 2. It is now being made known to the house of Israel in its entirety, along with the kind of enthronement and anointing that the Holy Spirit brings. The same words are used for Jesus seated on the throne before God and the apostles seated there in the upper room, just as the Holy Spirit comes and empowers and anoints them in the process. So what does that mean for those who are listening? Peter. First of all, it puts baptism in the context of Joel's last day. Baptism, we baptize people not because it's a nice thing, not because it's a beautiful thing, although I hope it is. We baptize thing not just because baptize people not just because it's expected. We baptize people because the end of the world is here. Because the dawn of a new day has come. We baptize people for many reasons, but baptism is a sign that in Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is breaking into this world. Now, Jesus has not yet come back in glory, and now there is time to be baptized and to repent. This baptism into the name of the Lord echoes what the prophet Joel was writing in chapter 3 and that Peter mentions in his sermon. It says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, now those in this last day who are baptized into the name of the Lord, into the name of the Lord Jesus, with his authority, or as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, they are being brought as a gift into the life of God, being given to God just as God is being given to them as well. The name of the Lord is being put upon them, and from henceforth, he is their salvation, their hope and their light and their life. In fact, Peter even switches it around. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter then goes and says, everyone whom the Lord will call for himself. Here, God extends his calling in the waters of baptism, and at the moment of repentance, saying, Come to me. I will give you rest. I will give you life and salvation. Come to me and find in me the kind of gift, the gift of God himself that you have always desired, always needed, and so often have ignored. And I believe it's for this reason that like David and like Jesus, in verse 41, it says, these souls are saved from destruction. This, I should add, I don't think is Luke's way of simply saying, well, their souls were saved, but not their bodies. That is not the metaphysics of the Christian New Testament. But he says, though these souls were saved, this again is a reference to what David says in Psalm 16, that you have not let my soul see hell. You have not let my soul see Hades. The people who listened to Peter, the people who experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit by being baptized and repenting of their sins, turning to Jesus, they experienced a salvation of their souls from the very grip of hell and death, just as David had predicted that he would and that consequently they would. That is, the promises made by David and to David were fulfilled in Christ and then made to those who find themselves 
in Christ as well. Making you his gift is the great purpose of the Spirit's coming. The Spirit brings us to faith in Christ. He seals us in his baptism. He incorporates us as one body in him, and he empowers us for ministry, just as he did with the apostles, as at the same time, he sets us apart for life with God forever. Now, I'm speaking to a room of people who are, I think, for the most part, baptized. There may be some of you who are not yet, and I want to say at this point, I hope from this message that you can begin to get the sense of why it is important. For Peter, there is no separation. We can make a theological separation between baptism and what the Holy Spirit is doing in someone's life. But in the words of the New Testament, in the words of Acts, here in chapter 2, Peter makes no difference between what happens with the water and what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. You want to receive the power and the gifting and the majesty, the incredible gift of the Holy Spirit, the waters of baptism are right there available to you. We can nuance this forever. But the simple fact remains that if you want to follow Jesus, if you want his blessing by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you want the promise of the Father, there is nowhere else to find it here in the church without passing through the waters of baptism. And for those of you who have already been baptized. Some of you may be saying, what should I do? Should I be baptized again? Perhaps I've been straying, wandering. Maybe I haven't felt very close to God. Maybe, frankly, I do not feel the gift that you are talking about. So, David, I have been listening to your sermon for the last three hours. And I know the sermon keeps getting longer, right? Um, I've been listening to you for a long time. And Honestly, what you are talking about, this experience of the Holy Spirit, I don't think I have experienced it. I have not felt what you were talking about. Does that mean that baptism didn't take? I was joking with some of the people here before the service, telling them a, just a little anecdote about when I was pastoring in Belize. The, I was working with an older priest, and we visited the home of some people that he had just done a baptism for a year or two before, and they came out of the front door very cross with the other pastor. And they said, Father Juan, I'm not going to do the Belizean accent, thankfully. Father Juan, you did the baptism wrong, and we're very upset with you. He said, what do you mean? He said, you did it wrong. You used the wrong water. He said, what do you mean? He said, the child is still bad. You have to boil the water first. <laughs> we had a good laugh about it. It was a joke. But still, I think we can at least in a little bit, in a small way, resonate with what the family was saying. What am I supposed to do if I feel like the baptism didn't take? Or I might have lost it? The goal here is not to say, get baptized as many times as you think you need. Just like Jesus died once for all on the cross, all you need is one baptism. Rather, as Martin Luther would say, we have to go and swim in our baptism a little bit. We have to come back and say, you know what? I am not always sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of me. The Holy Spirit can be at work without me experiencing it sensibly, without me feeling like something is going on. And yet I can trust and believe that what the Word of God says is true. And if in my baptism, 
I was united to Christ. If in my baptism, I stood like him in the waters of baptism and heard the voice of God saying, you are my son or you are my daughter and I am well pleased with you. And if like Jesus there in the waters of baptism, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and filled me for ministry, for service, for being a son or a daughter of God. And if in those waters of baptism, I did in fact, as Paul says in Romans 6, become buried, died, and then was raised to life with Christ. If all of that is true, then what I want to encourage you listening to me, if this is what is on your mind and on your heart, I want you to remember that this is God's gift. To come, and if you want to find the Holy Spirit, come back to Jesus. Come back to his word. If you want to find Jesus, pray for the Holy Spirit. And in so doing, I want to encourage you to lift up your heart, to lift up your mind, lift up everything that you are to God. We remember this on the day of Pentecost. And I encourage you to remember this henceforth. Amen.